Okay. But uh, here we go. Today we are, well, we are almost near the, nearing the end of our series called 316. We are uh, looking at John 316, and uh, hopefully you guys memorized it by now. No? No, I, I see a few nods, I see a few yawns. You're already bored and the sermon hasn't started yet. Okay, here it is. For God so loved the world. I'm not going to test you today. Next week I will. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The yellow part is what we went over for the past few weeks. Uh, today, next slide, we are going to be looking at the words shall not perish. And by talking about shall not perishing, uh, we will also kind of touch on the eternal life part. But next week, we're going to go full on the eternal life. And usually, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, at this point, I would be like, hey, guys, this is what the Greek word looks like. This is what the Hebrew word looks like. We're not doing that today. I know. So you're not going to be like, ooh, and eyeing today. And the reason why we're not doing that is because there's several ways of using, uh, of several Greek words that describes the same idea. So when I show you other passages, you're going to be like, that's not the same word. So I think it might confuse you if I showed you the word. So no Greek words, no Hebrew words today, okay? So the main thing, the main question we're going to be dealing with today is this. What does shall not perish mean? And here's, here's, if this is your first time at any church or if you like, don't have a background in church, you're in luck because you have the upper hand today. If you grew up in church, and you know that means like since you, you were going to Sunday school as a kid, and then maybe somebody tried to evangelize to you when you were in college or whatever, right? You have some preconceived notions about what this means that we need to wipe off the table today. We're like, we want to start with a clean slate, a clean canvas, okay? Because I think some of the ways that we think about these things, or maybe somebody went to, came up to you and said, you know what this verse is about? Shall not perish means will not go to hell. Right? Like when you see this first, the first thing you think is hell. You know, one of the things that we learn in seminary is you have to make sure you're reading the Bible on its own terms. So when you see the words shall not perish, you read into it, oh, that means will not go to hell. Right? You're reading into the scriptures, but shall not perish actually says shall not perish. It, you have to take it for what it actually says. It doesn't say we'll go to, we'll go to hell. So I want to wipe all that off your mind right now. Okay? And we're going to take it a step higher from like you know, whatever our Sunday school knowledge of this verse is, we're going to take it a notch higher. And the way we're going to do that, and I'm hoping that I don't lose you along the way, is I'm going to be using the help of uh, this animation company in Portland, Oregon called The Bible Project, which I'm actually a part of. And um, they make some cool videos. I took their videos, I spliced it up so that we could illustrate as we... Uh, as we talk about what this really means. Because in order to understand what shall not perish means, we have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. I know, shocker, right? Cost talking about Genesis? Never. Okay. So um, without further ado, here we go. So here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. Now here are some definitions. Heaven is God's space. Earth is human space. Now, some of you might think that Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created heaven and hell. It doesn't say that. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, heaven and hell are never juxtaposed to each other. It's always heaven and earth. And hell is something completely different. And we could do a whole sermon series on that in some time in the future. But today, what we need to know is heaven and hell, God's space and human space. Wherever people dwell is earth. Wherever God dwells, it is heaven. 
Are we clear so far? This is like, we need to know the definitions first before we begin, okay? Now, you're thinking, I don't know what these are anymore, so let's, let's go deeper into each one. Well, if earth is, heaven, is, is human space, you know what it is. There's trees, there's rivers, there's mountains, right? But heaven, well, there's imageries in the Bible, right? They're like, oh, there's angels there, and oh, there's a throne. I've read verses about there, there being a throne, right? And they use these imageries, and we're not even sure if these are literal descriptions or if they're just, they're using earthly um, terms to help us understand what heaven looks like. So we're not really sure what it looks like, okay? Like golden, you probably heard of the golden bricks or road or whatever people say, right? Um, the sea, that, the lake that looks like it's glass or you know, there's jasper and all these, yeah, all that stuff. People, scholars are like, those are probably more symbolic terms than they are actual literal descriptions of what it is over there. Okay, now these two spaces, as you can see, there's a dotted line going down the middle, right? In the beginning of Genesis, these two spaces, next slide, were not two separate spaces. They were actually one space. They were combined, where God's space and human space were actually one. Okay, so that's the Genesis 1 story. Now, the problem with this story, well, actually, let's not get to the problem yet. Let's define some more things here. In that overlap of heaven on earth, or earth and heaven together, there was a hot spot. There was like a special place in the middle called, next slide, the Garden of Eden. Okay, so heaven and earth overlap. In the center, there's the Garden of Eden. In the center of that, there's the tree of life and life of good and evil. Okay, so that's uh, good and evil. That's like in the middle. And in this garden, God placed two characters. Do you guys know who they are? Yeah, yeah. Next slide. So we have Adam and Eve right there. Okay, and God created trees and flowers and all these things, right? And God said, hey, I'm not just the one that's creating here. You have my image. So why don't you partner with me in creating this beautiful earth? So, you know, Adam and Eve are like, God's creating flowers. Hey, did you know that we could actually plant seeds and create with God? It's like, oh, that's so cool. Hey, did you know that God gave us life, but we have the power to bring life into this world also? That's so cool. You know how God is taking care of all the living animals? Did you know that as an image of God, you also have the power and the creativity to, to sustain life and create life? Whoa, they're working together. This is like this heaven on earth overlap. Okay, and that's how the story of Genesis starts. It's like this beautiful world, right? But eventually, you probably know on the third page of Genesis, the serpent comes along and tempts the humanity. Oh, by the way, Adam... You know what Adam means? It means humanity. You know what Eve means? Life, right? So humanity and life together, working with God. It's like this beautiful image. So there's a lot of symbolism in there too. Okay, so uh, as they're doing this stuff, um, the serpent comes in and plants doubts in their minds and even tempts them. And eventually, humanity is like, you're right, serpent. God is holding out on us. We think that the way that God defined good and evil, well, we think that we could do a better job of bringing judgment and, you know, into this world. I think, we think we should define what's right and what's wrong. So eventually, humanity rebels against God. And, next slide. And so, okay, the animation studio did that. Okay, but, um, not me. Um, and so eventually, humanity pushed God out, right? And now we have a separation of heaven and earth. How are we doing so far? Yes, I see a lot of nods. Whew, okay. Um, 
Now, biblical authors, there's over 40 of them in the entire Bible, okay? Biblical authors, they use different terms to label each of these spaces. So, next slide. So, for earth, the human space, they call it the world, the present age, or age of sin and death. That's what they call this area, okay? So, every time you see the word, like, the world, or the land, or, you know, this age, or they're talking about the land, the the space that we created for ourselves, and we kicked God out of it. Now, when it comes to the heaven space, we have words like heaven, the kingdom of God, and eternal life. We'll talk more about that next week, okay? So um, I hope that these, uh, this is maybe new to you, or maybe it's not, and that's a good thing if it's not, because then this is just review for you. Okay, now, the main goal of God in the entire Bible is God trying to take these two spaces and overlapping them again. If we could somehow get them over to, again, humanity and God will be together again. This is how Revelation ends. The very last book of the Bible, that's how it ends. When the, they use different words, like God's face is called the New Jerusalem. It descends to earth, and now heaven is on earth again. You see, that's the ultimate goal of this story, okay? Okay, so this is what God is able to do, or wants to happen. He wants to bring them over, but then the question is, how does he do that? Because in the story that we read in Genesis, what we discover is the human space is so polluted. It's like with with sin, with murder, with violence, with cheating and lying and all those things, right? And God's like, but I'm perfect. I can't come into your space. Well, I guess there is one way. I could basically do away with evil, and then I guess I could do the whole overlap thing, but there's a problem with that, and we'll talk about it in a few minutes, okay? So God in his infinite wisdom, is like, I think there's a hack. There is a way for me to make this work. There's kind of a way around certain things to make this whole thing work. And the way to make that overlap work is this thing right here called the temple. What is a temple? Temple is basically, um, well, here's a little history on the temple. So it started off, yeah, next slide. Oh, there we go. It started off with like a little tent. This tent is called the tabernacle. Same function. And then later on in history, they found a brick mortar, like a place to you know, actually build a real thing. So this is called Solomon's Temple. So um, basically, what is this thing called a temple? Well, when you walk into a temple, you'll know exactly what the purpose of this is. Because when you walk into a temple, this is what you'll see. Next slide. You'll see images of the garden. You'll see images of angels on the walls of the temple or the tabernacle. You'll see um, images of the tree of life. That's called the menorah. It's like a candlestick that looks like a tree with the, you know, right? Uh, We have jewels because, you know, these are symbolic of things in heaven. And also we have like flower, like the scent, the sweet smell of flowers. So it's clear what God is trying to do here. He's trying to create, well, the tabernacle, it's a portable version of the Garden of Eden, Right? It's like, remember Garden of Eden? That's where everything overlapped, and now it's gone? Well, um, we can make it happen again. Just bring with you this tent and pitch it up, and then you could have that heaven-on-earth experience. Or with a temple, it's like, hey, you could come to this place, because we can't move a brick-and-mortar place. You could come to this place in Jerusalem, and you could have that heaven-on-earth experience. Okay? And the closer you get to the center, like if you look here, there's a tent here, and there's like the main building here with the walls around it. The closer you get to the inside, so you have to go through the walls, and then you go into the tent that's called Tent of Meeting, because you can meet with God. And inside the Tent of Meeting, next slide, we have something called the Holy of Holies. That is like the hot spot of where God is. That's the hot spot of heaven on earth. Okay, so what makes this building so special? 
Like, are you telling me that if I just put up a poster of an angel in my bedroom and have a tree in there, then all of a sudden I have a hot spot of God? You're like, right, what makes this place so special, right? Okay, next slide. So there's some theological thing that we need to talk about here. Okay, so God's space has his presence, his goodness, justice, and beauty. But human space is polluted with sin, injustice, ugliness. And so if you were to put the two together, they just won't mix. There is no overlap. It just won't work. Remember, because God is holy, God is perfect, God is justice, all beauty, all those things. And humanity, because of a rebellion, is just messed up. It's just, I use the word polluted, but the Bible sometimes uses the word impure. Um, but so it just can't mix, right? So what makes that building so special that, that allows that overlap to happen? Well, Let's go back to the question I asked earlier. Why can't God just do away with evil? He's all-powerful, right? He, can't you just say, be gone, evil? It's like, ah, now the overlap could take place. Get away, pollution, right? You would think that it'd be that easy. But what we forget is this, that getting rid of evil implies getting rid of us because we have all contributed to the evils of this world. If you're like in current times, if you're like, man, the United States is so divided. Oh, man. Have we not also participated in dividing? There's so much violence. There's so much hate. Have we not participated in spreading hate? Oh, I'm not as bad as that guy over there. Have we not all judged people incorrectly? We have all participated in evil. And if God were to say, be gone, evil, he's like, oh, no, my beloved people are all gone, right? There's a problem. So the problem that God has to fix in this whole thing is this. How do you get rid of evil without getting rid of us? And the solution, the hack that I was telling you about earlier, the solution to this is this word, this really Christianese word. It's called atonement. Actually, it's not a Christianese word. It's a Jewish word that we adopted from them. Okay, the definition of the word atonement is to cover over somebody's debt. Okay, so this is the belief system they had back then. They believed that if there's pollution, the way we could get rid of it is by soaking it up. So if you have a clean, unused sponge and there's a lot of water, you put that on the water and it soaks up the water and then you do away with the sponge and you have dry area, right? That's the same idea here, okay? But instead of using a sponge, if it's evil that we're trying to get rid of, the thing that soaks up the evil in this world is an innocent life. So in the book of Leviticus, well, okay, do you guys know the orders of the first five books of the Bible? Genesis, Exodus, what's next? Leviticus, right? At the end of Exodus, they, God gives them the instructions on how to build a tabernacle. But at the end, very last part, the very last chapter of Exodus, they're standing in front of the built tabernacle and they're like, so how do we get in? <laughs> like, we can't get in, Right? What comes after Leviticus? Numbers. In the beginning of the book of Numbers, they're finally going in. So Leviticus is the book that teaches them how do you go in and purify this area so that we could go in. That's, that's what Leviticus is, okay? In Leviticus, this is the, what basically the whole book, I'm going to condense it into this quick animation here, is that, oh, no, go back. Here we go. You kill an innocent animal. I didn't draw this, remember? Okay? And by killing that animal... It soaks up the pollution and increases clean space, and because of that, it could overlap. That's what atonement is. And that is a limited area. It could only be in that one spot in the tabernacle, right, in the hot spot. 
And it's a symbol, it's a symbol of, hey, we're creating pure space so that God could come in and we could meet them there and have heaven on earth just for that one hot spot for that moment in history, okay? Okay, so I'm gonna give you an example of what that looked like in the book of Leviticus. Yeah, you're like, we never read the book of Leviticus here. We're gonna do that today, here we go. Okay, so uh, here's a quick uh, um, context for this. So only so now that they have the tabernacle built, um, they're like, so who's gonna go in? Because God said that it's not like you can't just go in there willy-nilly. You just have to, you have to pick one person, and that one person could go in only once a year. So they're like, who's going to go in? They're like, okay, Moses is like, let's get Aaron to go in. Aaron, are you good to go? He's like, yes, sir, I'm ready to go. And he goes in, and God's like, no, whoa, 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 don't go in yet. Okay, we have a pure space here, but you aren't pure. So we need to do some ritual on you so that you, okay, so this is that scene right here. Here we go. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place, the holy of holies. Next, next verse. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So you've got to bring two animals to soak up the sin. Next verse. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic. So you have to wear something specific to get in there. Uh, with linen undergarments, so what you wear, like your undies, matter in this case, next to his body, he is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. So you're like, you mean I can't just go in wearing jeans? Like, no, 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 you got to dress up, dude. You got to wear the official clothes that God wants you to wear to get into this tent. Okay, well, uh, where, oh, here it is. Okay, so I'll, I guess I'll start putting it on. And it's like, whoa, no, 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 because the garment you're about to wear is also pure. And you're not pure, right? So next verse, <laughs> you got to do stuff to wear the stuff that you need to wear to get into the place, right? These are sacred garments. So he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. You know, it's interesting he says with water because what else? I don't know. What, what did they use back then? I don't know. But okay, milk. <laughs> okay. So, okay, so not only does he have to bathe before he goes into this tent, right? Now he has to sacrifice some animals. Next verse. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering, and you're like, okay, I'm clean. I'm ready to go in. It's like, no, 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 no. You are connected to your family. So, oh, yes, you have to do your own sin offering to make atonement for himself and for his household. Like, you have to be really squeaky clean to get into this place, right? And then, you know, I'm not going to read the rest, but what happens is, it's like, remember you brought in a bull? That's for you and your family. The goat is for the rest of the community. You are coming in here to represent the entire thousands of people who are outside the tent. So after you're done doing that for yourself, I want you, you know, to uh, take the goat and kill it and take that blood and sprinkle it around the place you know, so that it, you know, it represents the community being clean, coming to God, but you, they still can't enter the... You know, it's like really complicated. You don't have to know this for the test. Okay, so here's a little animation. So the idea here is that the blood represents life innocent life. And so by sprinkling the blood inside the tent, it represents that the life, the innocent life is soaking up all the evil that's inside the tent. So it becomes a pure, pure place. Okay. Now there is a problem with this. You think like, Hey, God figured out a little, you know, hack to make this heaven on earth thing happen. Right. There's a few problems with this. Number one is that it's only allowing one person to go in once a year. Another problem is uh, that people have to travel. So what do people do if they live in, uh, I don't know, Ethiopia? How do they have access to this heaven on earth? 
Well, they have to travel. There's only one place you could go to, right? But the biggest problem is, the, is that this is temporary. This is temporary. Next slide. So the idea here is once you use this, it's not pure anymore. It's polluted again. Okay, so, so here's the idea here, okay? Um, my kids are in elementary school right now, and what I don't hear from them that I used to hear all the time when I was in elementary school is that when I was in elementary school, we talked about cooties. They don't talk about cooties. I don't know why. But, okay, but the idea of cooties is this, okay? If you have cooties and somebody touches you, or if you have cooties and somebody touches me, then I have cooties, right? That's the whole system that we all agreed upon, right? But I can't go around saying, I don't have cooties, you have cooties, ha, you're healed. Like, it doesn't work that way, right? Because when something dirty touches something clean, usually the dirt rubs off on the one that's not dirty, right? You, it doesn't go the other way around. So that's why Aaron could go through all those rituals and create a pure space. Eventually, it gets polluted again because cooties, right? Okay, so that was the problem, is that this is temporary. If you go to the burning bush, right, when Moses went there and he saw God, you know, in the burning bush, um, it was pure at that time. If you go there now, you won't see any burning bush there anymore because it's polluted again, right? If you go to where the tabernacle was, it's not holy anymore because it's polluted. Everything that God, God any hack that God did at that time to create a sacred space, a holy place, it's not holy anymore. It's temporary. Until God brought a solution to the story. And that comes in the form of Jesus. So in the book of John, here's Jesus. There's this scene in the beginning of John chapter, John chapter 1. This is when we actually meet the character Jesus in the book of John. Um, the guy who wrote the book, his name is John the Apostle. Um, not to be confused with this guy down here. That's John the Baptist, okay? There's two Johns in this story. John the Baptist is baptizing all these people, and all of a sudden he sees Jesus walking in. And the thing that he says is a clue to what, how God is going to solve this problem, okay? So here it is. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God. Why does he call him an animal? It's like, you animal. I don't know. What, why does he call him Lamb of God? We'll find out who takes away the sin of the world. When Aaron killed an animal, it took away the sin of that small room for a short amount of time. When John sees Jesus, he's like, oh, that's the Lamb of God who's going to take the sins, take away the sins of the world. Like, ooh. This is atonement language here, guys. If you know the Old Testament, when John said that, you'll be like, ding, ding, ding. I know exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about Leviticus. He's talking about that system that only lasted for a little while. You're saying that he's the real deal? That he's actually the solution to the problem? And it's not just John the Baptist that makes this claim. John, who wrote this book, he also makes this claim just a few verses before this. Take a look. The word, that's God, became flesh, he's talking about Jesus, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, this is the part where I kind of flex using a little Greek here. Okay, I, I got it in there somehow. Okay, the word here for dwell is actually the word tabernacle in the Greek. When John wrote this, he purposely used the word tabernacle. So what does this all mean? Okay, next slide. 
John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. He's saying he's also a tabernacle, and not only that, he's also the Lamb that's going to be sacrificed. So what does that mean? When Jesus dies on the cross, he's going to create this space, and it's not going to go away. But it's not a location. It's people. He's going to create a people who are the clean space. So wherever these people go, there's, there's clean space here and there. As a matter of fact, the, way, the reason we know this is because if you look at the way that John writes Jesus' story, you'll see that, remember that whole thing about cooties, right? person without cooties cannot give cleanliness to somebody with cooties. Jesus seems to work the, the opposite way. Whenever Jesus goes, next slide, wherever Jesus goes, he, he touches things and it gets pure. Like wherever he goes, and then whenever he's there, he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what he means by that is that the two worlds are coming together. If you read the Bible and you always wonder, what does Jesus mean when he says the kingdom of God is near or the kingdom of God is here? Which one is it, Jesus? Can you be more clear about this, right? He's like, well, it's kind of both, right? Wherever I am, I'm bringing the kingdom with me. I'm bringing to you, like there's a blind person, and now they could see. That's what heaven on earth looks like and he brought it there. There's a person who can't hear. You're deaf, but here, I'm going to touch you, and now you can hear. I brought heaven here with you. Usually, it works the other way around, right? When death touches life, death over, overtakes life, right? But here, when I touch them, right, there's a person who's an outcast. When I touch them, they're all of a sudden part of a community. They're not lonely anymore. Wherever Jesus went, the reverse happened. His pureness, his purity is so strong, so powerful, that when he touches people, they become a representation of heaven on earth. And because he's the Lamb of God, next slide, he had to be crucified. He became the ultimate sacrifice. Now, when Jesus was hanging on the cross and people were watching him dying and bleed to death, um, they weren't like, oh my goodness, that's the sacrifice we've been waiting for. Nobody knew that at the time. But years later, as these people looked back on what happened on the cross, they were like, you know what? I think that was a very significant thing. I don't think he was murdered on the cross. I think he was a, it was a sacrifice. One of the New Testament writers, we don't know his or her name, but this person wrote the book of Hebrews. This is what he or she said. He said, she said, they said, I don't know. Jesus appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. He's like, you don't have to do sacrifices every year anymore. Once and for all, Jesus, God, dying on the cross, being sacrificed, takes care of this problem once and for all. Wherever his people go, there will also be the kingdom of God, right? And it's not just this person who said that. One of the most known, well-known New Testament writers, his name is Paul. This is what he said. This is Romans chapter 3. God presented Christ, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement. Again, there it is, the word atonement. He's talking about the book of Leviticus. Through the shedding of his blood. And so when Jesus died on the cross, these early Christians, they looked at that story and said, you know what this means? We, the people who are the church, right? The people that follow Jesus and he died on the cross. We are the people who are now little Christs. And we are the ones that are going into the world touching and carrying and touching people's lives and bringing heaven on earth wherever we go. So next slide. So because of the death on the cross, we are now spreading heaven on earth. 
Okay, this is why at Westlight we always say, may you experience heaven on earth together, because we believe that is our main thing. That's the main thing. That's the story that started in Genesis and ends in Revelation. That's the whole Bible right there, by the way, right? We are the spread of atonement. That's us. And we get to do that without killing animals, <laughs> right? Well, Jesus died, and that's why we're able to do that. And as we go into the world and we, we touch people's lives, we are people who are transformed by God, and we're still being transformed. But we are now agents of people that starts the transformation process in other people. Now, let's skip to the end of the Bible. At the very end, in the book of Revelation, John, who wrote the book we just read, he also writes the book of Revelation, and at the very last chapter, he says that the story ends with God's space, heaven, becoming a city. Next slide. It's becoming a city. It started with a garden, now it's a city, right? And over here, eventually, the two worlds overlap. However, the pollution stays outside. If you have put your faith in Christ, I want to live according to his ways. When the two worlds overlap, you are also welcome into that space because you are part of heaven already, okay? But anything of this world, like Paul will use words like powers and principalities. I don't know if you guys know what that means, powers and principalities. Powers and principalities, okay, so for example, um, don't want to get too political here, but if you think that voting for a certain person would do away the division of, this, of, of the United States, okay? Doesn't matter. I'm not going to say which candidate. If you, say, if you just get rid of that politician, then everything's going to be okay. I guarantee you, even if you get rid of one of the politicians, this division's still going to be around. So who is to blame for this division? So the early Christians couldn't figure out exactly who it was. And so they're like, even if we got rid of Caesar, the oppression's going to continue, Right? Even if you get rid of that guy down the street, we think he's the reason for all this, this problem's still going to continue. So it must be something like a, a power or principality that's around us that's causing this. So he says, those powers and dominions will be left outside. Okay? The, the forces that doesn't want to be a part of God's good world will not be included when, it, when the two worlds combine. So what happens to all this over here? Well, eventually, next slide, it'll vanish. And that vanishing is called perish in the Bible. Sometimes it's referred to as God's wrath, and sometimes it's just referred to as destruction. This is what John 3.16 means when it says, you will not perish. That means you will not be left out there. You will be brought in here with God's kingdom, with heaven, or the new city. That you know, There's different words to describe the same thing. So here are some verses in the Bible that talk about this. Paul talks about it a lot, believe it or not. Here's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, this world in its present form is passing away. Right? This is a different Greek word than the word for perish. That's why I didn't, you know, it didn't really matter, right? Here's another verse from the same book. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom, of, a kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. He says, Jesus is creating more and more heaven on earth. And when that happens, he's going to hand it over to God, right? And everything else is going to be left out there and it's just going to pass away. Here's a verse from Revelation. This is how the story ends. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes because in heaven, there's no more pain, right? There's no more sickness. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So these are different ways that these biblical authors use to talk about this idea of perishing. 
So, what is perishing? Here's my working definition. The defiled world that will cease to exist. That's, that's what it is. This does not mean that God is trigger happy. I think you know, whenever the biblical authors use the word wrath of God, we think God wants to throw lightning bolts at people. Like, ah, you messed up, lightning bolt. You know? It's like, is that you lying? You know? What is that you're watching? You know, right? That's not, okay, so the biblical authors use words and there's no good exact translation in English. I want you to understand that the reason why that world's going to perish is not because God's trying to get rid of it. God has infinite patience. He wants to wait as long as he can before everybody could come over to, you know, to the heaven side. The reason why it perishes is because, and if you read through the scriptures, you'll learn that this becomes very self-evident, that humanity left to its own vices without any correctives will eventually turn on itself and destroy itself. That's one of the fears of America right now, right? It's like, where is this, where is this nation going without any corrective? It's going to eventually turn on itself and destroy itself. This experiment's not going to work anymore. That's exactly what the Bible talks about when it talks about the people who are part of their own world. Up until now, God's been intervening to make sure that didn't happen, right? But eventually, God's like, okay, we're done. Let's combine the worlds together. You guys are off on your own, and eventually, it destroys itself. Left to its own vices, humanity will eventually self-destruct. And that's what the wrath of God is referring to. Okay. So, I hope you guys were able to, able to follow, okay? So, here's John 3.16 again, and let's see if it makes more sense. For God, in the first week we talked about God, we're talking about Yahweh, who loved the world, the number one feature of this God is love, right? If there's anything he wants to be known for, he wants to be famous for, it's the ability for him to love perfectly. So, this God, Yahweh, who loves perfectly, he gave his one and only son, and we talked about that, it doesn't mean the son that he gave birth to or anything like that. It actually means the one unique special son, the one and only son, right? He gave them up, him, him up that whoever believes in him, or we've talked about how whoever faiths in him, right? Whoever says, yes, I believe Jesus and whatever he says that he was, I think that's who he is to a point where it's like, it's consumed my, 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 my behavior, right? That's what he's talking about. Whoever believes who Jesus says that he is, will not be left out, will not be left outside of heaven, will not perish, but have eternal life. And we'll talk about eternal life next week. I hope it makes more sense now. Now, the first century Christians, they knew this. You know, I'm like explaining to us because we're like 2,000 years apart with different cultural you know, foundations and stuff like that. But to them, it just made sense. And they grew up with this, especially if you're a Jew back then. This is what this was your hope. You were waiting for this to happen for a very long time. And when Jesus showed up and he said that he's the, the Lamb of God who's going to take away this in the world, they knew exactly what that meant. Okay? The big question on their minds was not, what does this mean? The big question on their mind is, so how are we supposed to live our lives today? So we don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. Cool. So that's one big check mark, you know, yay, you know, we don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to, you know, my favorite lamb, you know, Bessie, I don't have to, you know, take him to the slaughter anymore. You know, like my younger sister's going to be so happy, right? So, okay, so is there anything else? So Paul the Apostle writes a letter to a group of Christians in Rome, and basically he tells them this. He says, you know, dear Church of Rome, 
yes, you don't have to sacrifice animals anymore because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. But that does not get you off the hook of not sacrificing anymore. And they're like, wait, wait, wait. I thought you just said that I don't have to sacrifice animals anymore because of Jesus' sacrifice. What do you mean I'm not off the hook? And he says this. He says, therefore, because Jesus was the great sacrifice for your life, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Whoa, 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 whoa. What does that mean, Paul? Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Wait, what is a living sacrifice? It's like in the past, you take your animal, you kill it, and you let the blood drip, and you, you, know, right? you do all that stuff. You don't have to do that anymore. But now, you, if you call yourself a Christian, you are a sacrifice. But the kind of sacrifice that doesn't die, you're walking around town, and you're always putting yourself second. If you see somebody in need, and you're like, oh, but I have needs too, he says, you put their needs ahead of you. You're sacrificing yourself. If school, an analogy would be, I have my lunch money. My friend forgot his lunch money. I'm willing to sacrifice my lunch so that my friend could have a meal. Or maybe even I will sacrifice half of my lunch so that we could share it together. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. I need to, you know, um, I've been saving up for a new whatever, right? Oh, but my friend is in the hospital, needs money. I'm going to put that person's life ahead of my desire to buy that expensive whatever I've been saving up for. Living sacrifice. Maybe it's your own ego. I'm supposed to say I'm sorry because I know I did it, I was wrong, or maybe I'm still convinced that I'm not wrong, but my relationship with this person is way more important than my ego. So I'm willing to take the fault for it, and whatever fines are due, I will pay it because that's what Christ did for me. This is what he means by, hey, you don't have to sacrifice animals anymore, but there's still sacrifice required of you because if you're going to be the, 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 the purple dawn, the illustration, if you are the light of Christ that's going into the world, we need you to behave like Christ. And you know what did, what did Jesus do? He sacrificed himself. So I want you also to be a living sacrifice. And then he continues. He says, do not conform to the patterns of this world. When he, when he says this world, he's talking about the, uh, the, the, the circle on this side, right? He's saying, do not conform to the patterns of the world that you live in. The world that pushed God out, Right? No, no, no. You are now members, citizens of heaven. You are ambassadors of Jesus. You are now part of that world. So for that reason, don't act like you're from this, the world that pushed God out. I want you to act like people who are people of Jesus. So don't act like the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you like, renew, like, just change the way you think? How do you do that? You will be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is really important, guys. When you start acting the way that Jesus acted, meaning you're being a sacrifice to people, right? You're acting like a member of heaven now. You will start to see, oh, I see what God's doing in this world. I see what his plan is. I see what he's, what he's up to. Oh, I see how he's trying to redeem that person. Oh, I see how this person, the big issue with this person is not like political things, but this person just needs to be loved in the way that Christ loved him. Like you start to see and you start to unfold what God is trying to do in this world. I mean, this is, this is another memory verse. I don't know if you guys memorized it, but it's a good one to memorize, right? If you start to li- live out your part in God's plan, you start to understand his plan more and more. Another way of putting this is this. Now that you know that Jesus has sacrificed himself for your atonement, 
And now that you are the part, you are the atonement that's going into the world, creating more atonement opportunities, you are now part of the solution, not the problem. Now, unfortunately, when I turn on the news and listen to churches, what's happening in other churches, I do hear stories of the church being part of the problem and not being part of the solution. But what we're supposed to be is we're supposed to be part of the solution, right? So the question that I want to ask you today is this. Do you want to be a part of the solution? Do you want to be a part of the solution? And if you do, you will not perish but have eternal life. You are participating in bringing heaven on earth. God has a plan, and you'll see that plan more clear if you start this journey. You'll start to see that God is trying to bring heaven on earth. And you'll start seeing, like, oh my gosh, there's a heaven on earth right there. Oh my gosh, there's a heaven on earth right there. And you'll participate, and you'll do something like, oh my gosh, I just played a part in bringing heaven on earth to this person just right now. And how would you like to be a part of that? Amen? All right, let's pray.